You're listening to the Class on Task podcast, created for educators. Your hosts, Ashley and Brian, will share tips, strategies, and resources related to behavior and education that can help you in your classroom. All right, so welcome to the Class on Task podcast with Brian and Ashley. Our guest today is Dr. Cicero, who serves as the program director in the Applied Behavior Analysis Graduate Program at Seton Hall University. We're excited to have him here with us today to talk to us about the topic of toilet training in the schools. Welcome, Dr. Cicero. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Excited. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So would you just kind of start out by letting our audience kind of know a little bit about yourself and your professional background and training? Sure. I started off back in the early 90s as a psychology major at uh, St. John's University. Then as you become a senior, you start to panic because you don't know what you're going to do with the psychology major (laughs) and school's ending quickly. So just like everybody else, you go to graduate school. And I was thinking forensic psychology, but then when I realized the exciting life of Silence of the Lambs was not in my future, I did school psychology, which was cool. And got my certificate. And my first job was for an ABA school with individuals with autism, birth through adulthood. Um, And I was their school psychologist from birth through adulthood. Um, And quickly learned the ABA because I kind of took the job before really being an expert in it. And just got hooked on applied behavior analysis and how it's effective and became a behavior analyst and became a licensed psychologist and became a professor and I don't know, just keep doing different things and moving on. That's me. It definitely a, uh, a pretty diverse background. I mean, I could totally relate because I, I was a psych major as well in undergrad. Yep. It's definitely one of those things where you're like, oh, wow, what am I going to do with my life now? Yeah, you know, you know, some of the best things in life are when you fall into it, right? And you kind of experience different stuff and you get to test out and say, I actually like this. Or, you know, in the case of behavior analysis, this stuff works. Like <laughs> yeah. That. Yeah, you actually you just gain the experiences. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like behavior analysis, it's so broad. Like there's so many things you can dive into, which yep. brings us to our next question. So why toilet training? Why are you the expert on toilet training? Well, you know, sometimes things find you, right? Like I said, I was the school psychologist for birth through adulthood. So I actually had this 18-year-old on my caseload, and he was not toilet trained, and I thought he could be. And I dove into the literature, and I was like, no, we can try to do this. It just hasn't been done in a long time with this guy. But I think we could try to do this. You know, even even predating the actual ethics code, I, I realized I'm not really competent in this. <laughs> Luckily, there was a, a professional on Staten Island. He was a behavior analyst and a psychologist. His name was uh, Dr. Al Fott. And he did a replication study of one of the original Fox Azrin toilet training methods, which is a very famous uh, behavioral toilet training method from founding behavior analysts. And he was one of the guys that replicated the project at the Willowbrook State School here on Staten Island. And he had great results with it. And I contacted him. I knew him. I contacted him. And he said, let's do it. He's like, I haven't done toilet training in decades. He's like, I was like <laughs> he's like, wow, I get this call out of nowhere. He's like, let's do it. And yeah, we did it. And we, we, we just moved ahead and we developed a method and we published an article and we presented at ABAI, not just this one case, but I'm like, it just kind of like snowballed mm-hmm. from there. And I just really got into it. Did so, you work uh, with multiple ages at that time? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was working with honestly, like two-year-olds to 50-year-olds, not only toilet training, but mm-hmm. 
but it slowly started to turn into a lot of toilet training. I mean, we had a preschool in the agency and all those preschoolers were not toilet trained when they came in. Um, so we did our best to make them all toilet trained on the way out. (laughs) Nice. Um, That's the story of how that happened. Yeah, it's so, it's so true. Sometimes things just kind of find you in the in the field and when you're when you're working. You know, when you take a job, right? You don't know what's going to come your way, but you also have the job. So you can't say no. It's like you have to <laughs> brainstorm the problem and sometimes get a consultant or, or look at the literature, but but the case is yours because you took the job. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So you have to kind of you have to kind of learn as you go along ethically, of course, with consultation. Yeah, absolutely. And th- and that's so true. And I think even for some of our listeners who may not be behavioralists, but are other school professionals, right, that consultation piece is so key to really be able to find people that do have expertise in a particular area, just like yourself, right? Bring someone like you in. They're like, hey, we have a kid. We need to be able to toilet train. We don't know where to begin. Yep. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. So many of our listeners may be working with students either in pre-K or kindergarten, and some are working with students with disabilities who might be in need of toilet training. So what sort of recommendations or strategies would you offer potentially to these educators? I mean, in general, right? This is, some people say like, oh, I'm going to go to a webinar or a workshop on toilet training. And other people are like, why would you go to a workshop? on? T- We've been toilet training people for thousands of years, right? We've been toilet training each other for thousands of years. Like, what could this guy have to say that's new? Um, and honestly, when it comes down to it, I always start off my workshop saying like that. I'm like, you can listen to me or you can listen to your grandmother. Either way, you'll probably get the job done. It's principles of behavior analysis that toilet train. And you don't need to be a behavior analyst. I mean, 3,000 years ago, there weren't behavior analysts, but there was people using behavioral principles to toilet train, right? Mm-hmm. How do we toilet train? We toilet train through prompting, right? We prompt kids to go to the toilet. Hurry up, hurry up, go, hold it. Let's go. Like that, you prompt them, right? <laughs> we, give re- we give rewards, right? Good job going. Here's an M&M. Here's a sticker. Excellent. Good trying, right? We do repetitious trials, right? So every half hour you're in the bathroom, every 20 minutes you're in the bathroom. Let's go. It seems like the week is lasting forever. You're spending more time in the bathroom than out, right? All these repetitious trials, right? And error corrections. The kid has an accident. What do you do, right? You have to do something with the fact that he just had an accident, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you do? But this is how we've always been toilet training, right? So when it comes to schools and teachers, I always say that, well, your role in the process is going to depend on where you're working, and the population that you're working with, right? So, so you know, some real kind of gen ed teachers, especially if you don't have a bathroom in the back of your classroom, and especially if you're in a public school setting, it might be very hands-off, consultative to that parent, and maybe helping the parent out in school when the parent says, try to make him go to the bathroom. Okay, I'll try. But you're probably not going to take like an active role in sitting in the bathroom with the kid all day. If, however, you're working with, you know, significant developmental disabilities, you're in a private special education school. Now's where you're probably taking the lead and you're doing the toilet training in the classroom and then recommending to the teacher. It's almost like that. It's almost going that direction. But, you know, honestly, here's here's the best thing probably for the teachers in like preschools. Here's when kids are ready to toilet train. When they can sit on a toilet for about three minutes without constantly popping off the toilet, when they can hold their urine for about a half hour without just like reflexively letting it go, like all all the time in little drips, when they have knowledge of contingencies, so they understand, you're going to tell me to do something, I'm going to try to do something, 
and then you're going to give me a reward if I'm right, mm-hmm. right? When they understand kind of that concept, right? And when they have low rate interfering behaviors. So you're not constantly fighting with them over other stuff. As long as you got that package, you're ready to go. All the rest doesn't matter. I have parents always come to me and say, well, uh, he doesn't seem bothered by the fact that he's wet. He doesn't need to seem bothered. Like that's not a prerequisite. He doesn't tell me when he's ready to go. That's not a prerequisite. Like we'll teach him that along the way. Yeah, I think those are very, very valuable points, especially too in the differences in the settings, right? And the roles in which people may play as part of that toilet training process. And like you said, sometimes there's just more providing that insight and consultation to the parents to say, hey, this is what we're trying in school and this seems to be working. Go do that versus, like you said, taking the lead and really being able to go more hands-on doing an intensive toilet training procedure. And even to those intensive toilet training procedures, that's where it's like, that's where you really need the guidance of, of someone who knows how to be able to do toilet training effectively and manage those behaviors. You know, absolutely. And if you're talking general education, young children without any history of physical issues or urinary bladder issues or anything like that, typically you don't need a very intense system. It's like, as long as you have that prompting, rewarding, repetitious trials, you probably will get the job done along the way with accidents all over the place, but it'll, you know, it'll probably <laughs> work out. Once you're talking a more significant developmental issue or maybe a prior or a current urinary bladder issue, now you probably need an increase in intensity and an increase in consistency. So you've mentioned a lot of like that reinforcement piece, schedule. Based on your research and toilet training, what aspects are the most effective to include when someone starts this whole process? Yeah. So whenever you have your plan, right? Like a, a toilet training plan is always multi-component, right? There's, there's, there's mm-hmm. several components to it, but every component has its purpose, right? I always figure this. I always figure there's about three main components to a toilet training intervention, right? No matter what it is. The first one's going to be like the setup, right? So like, well, well, this is almost pre, right? Pre is like the setup, setting up the child, getting everything ready. Where are you going to do it? Are you going to use a potty seat in the living room? Are you going to use the bathroom upstairs? Um, is the kid going to be in a diaper? Is the kid going to have no clothes on? Is the kid going to just be in underwear? Kind of like figuring out all those variables. And some of those variables just don't matter. It's just a matter of being consistent. Like with once, once you decide something, right? Then you need some form of a schedule. Usually I recommend every half hour. I usually don't recommend below that. I know people who toilet train every 10 minutes. I think it's a problem because, well, we're going to say you need accidents, right? So I think a half hour is usually pretty good to prompt the kid to the toilet every half hour. And what does that schedule do? The schedule teaches routine, right? The Mm -hmm. task analysis, where do I go? How do I sit? What do you want me to do? How long is it going to take? right? The schedule teaches all that routine. Then some form of communication training where they have to learn, they have to initiate to us. Mom, I need to go like that. Or, you know, know, Mrs. Jones, I need to go to the bathroom, right? Mm -hmm. They need to initiate to us. And that piece needs to be built in as well, that, that asking component. And then the third is the accident correction. You have to do something with the accidents. You can't just ignore the fact that the kid had an accident. In fact, the accident piece is the only piece that teaches the timing. It's when the kid knows he should be asking is that accident piece because it's the only time where we know 
he or she has the motivation to actually go mm-hmm. is when they're urinating. That's when we know he or she has to go, right? So you got two choices with an accident in the literature. You could punish an accident. There's a lot of toilet training plans with punishment of accidents. I tend to not use a punishment of accidents. I tend to use what we, what in the in our lingo, we call a, a forward moving prompting procedure, okay. which is basically this. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, go. <laughs> it's, it's not much more to it than that. It's more like you see the kids starting to urinate. And then instead you shout something out that startles them up, gets them stopping going. They reflexively hold their urine. And then you say, let's go, let's run. Like that, you (laughs) run them to the toilet. And then when you get there, you go, no, go here, go pee. Like that. And they start to go. And then you reward it. Like an actual success. Even though he's, you know, she started in her pants. We're going to reward it as a success, right? But the literature shows both are pretty effective. Punishing the accidents or forward prompting to the toilet. But you got to do something with the accidents. I do know some programs that try to be so proactive and, and like, they say, well, we don't want to embarrass the kid. So we take them to the bathroom on a schedule. We reward for success. And if they have an accident, we just change them, but we don't say anything. And I say, oh, good. You know what you're going to get? A schedule trained kid that only goes when you tell them to go, but will not go on their own. And self-initiate because that accident is what gives them that motivation to say, oh, I should have went like that. Now I got the accident. I should have went. I love that you mentioned the second part, too, about the requesting, because a lot of parents I've heard say or teachers, parents say, oh, well, they know where the restroom is. They just go. I'm like, yep. OK, well, what about if you're at the grocery store? What about if you're you know, at a theme park? What are they going to yep. do? They need to ask, like, I yep. need to go to the bathroom. Where's the bathroom? <laughs> you know, and sometimes that requesting component has to be very refined. Right. So if you mm-hmm. have a, if you have a child with significant autism who doesn't naturally request anything really does it you know naturally request either verbally or through you know you know vocally or through a, a communication device that needs to really be built into the toilet training plan but don't think that just because a kid does not have a developmental disability that they don't need communication training do you know how embarrassing and hard it is for some kindergartners to raise their hand in a group of 20 Oh, and yeah. <laughs> interrupt a math lesson, like interrupting a math, you know, some kids are just chatterboxes. So they're just going to interrupt anything. Mrs. So-and-so, I got to go to the bathroom. But there's those other kids that will desperately try to wait till the end of the period mm-hmm. but, but to just not have to say it out loud. Yeah. Well, that kid needs communication training. Yeah. I've seen it too, where the kid's like so into like the movie or the iPad that they had those accidents because they don't want to leave that really fun thing to go yeah. to the bathroom. Absolutely. So same thing. That kid needs the accident correction. That kid needs the communication Mm -hmm. training. So so don't just think communication training is for people with developmental issues or autism or, you know, speech and language issues. So you need to definitely need to build that in. Yeah. So, Frank, that actually made me think, too, sometimes I've seen in schools they'll utilize those like pants alarms that are supposed to cue when an individual is wet. What are, what are your thoughts on those in terms of part of the toilet training? You know, our traditional literature going back to the 60s used the pants alarms, right? And I've used the pants alarms and I, I know professionals now that I'm close with in, in the toilet training circles that, that use the, they still use the alarms. It does give that sense of immediacy mm-hmm. between the starting of the urine 
and the ringing of the alarm. You can't get more immediate than that, right? And also it doesn't rely on a trainer to make that prompt happen, right? And we know there's a lot of human error in behavior analysis, right? Trainer error. So uh, I'm sitting there, I'm waiting desperately for the whole hour, waiting for this kid to start to urinate. And then I tie my shoe and I look up after tying my shoe and the kid's sitting in a puddle. Well, you just (laughs) missed an entire teaching trial, right? Um, You wasted that kid's time because you took 30 seconds to tie your shoe. The pants alarm would have solved that problem because it would have rang, right? Not only do you hear it as the trainer, the kid hears it. I don't traditionally use them, I got to tell you, because I do find them to be a bit cumbersome to kind of like have in there. And then, you know, if you have a a dedicated one-to-one trainer, you don't need them. But if you don't, then you might need them. But also think of general education, right? You know, you have to always have to watch what environment you're in, right? That's going to be very embarrassing for yep. some five-year-old mm-hmm. kid that, or even a three-year-old kid who literally the whole classroom hears an alarm that they just peed. Mm-hmm. Like, that's embarrassing. No, I, I agree with you on that. Definitely the context or the setting is extremely important to keep in mind with using those. I find that, that you know, yeah, I have to keep reminding that because a lot of behavior analysts, probably less teachers... But a lot of behavior analysts are so stuck in the developmental disability world that they think that the the, the procedures just transfer. I'm like, the principles transfer, but the the, the details probably need to change. Not probably, definitely need to change depending on the environment that that you're in. That's so true. Now, I know also, too, sometimes we run into situations where we have older students that may have never been successfully toilet trained. And sometimes families share that, you know, it was difficult for them to be able to do toilet training because maybe their child at that point had, uh, you know, some significant challenging behavior. You know, are there any thoughts on how we could provide toilet training to those older students or students who do have problem behavior related going to the restroom? Yeah, well, first of all, my overriding message is do it. Toilet train them, even no matter what age they are, start a toilet training program, right? I mean, I know school districts, literally, that do not allow toileting goals on an IEP after a certain age because they no longer think it's appropriate for that grade to be doing toileting. I was like, so it's more appropriate to keep the person in a diaper than it is to claim that a seventh grader could work on toileting as a skill. Just think of how illogical that statement is, right? But I but I, I know places that do it, right? But I do say this, before you start with an older individual, do a little bit of a history check. Make sure that there was no medical issues, right? It's, you know, make sure that there was no, there's no physiological issues. I always ask, especially for developmental disabilities, I ask for what the developmental disability is. What is the diagnosed syndrome? And then I look it up. I go to, I go to the syndrome like webpage and I, I research it and say, does it correlate with issues with toileting? Is there an inability to toilet? Is there an inability to have sphincter muscle control? Because there are some developmental disabilities where very clearly it says that they do not have control of certain certain voluntary muscles or something. So I always make sure I look at that stuff. Also with older students, make sure there wasn't regression. Well, he was toilet trained until he was 16 and then he became untoilet trained. Uh, That's curious because you don't become untoilet trained. 
Like that's not, unless there's some, an issue, a cognitive degeneration, a physical degeneration, an emotional issue or a trauma related issue. Like you don't just lose toileting because you forget, right? So I always look into that stuff with older learners, but you'd be surprised how many older learners I get a consultation call on. There is no physiological issue. There is no trauma issue. There is no history. There is no syndrome that would prevent it. There was just a lack of good behavior analysis early on. And then they became in a diaper and then no one tried after they were 13. And now I get the call at 18. I always keep, I always start off with telling people the very first person I ever intensely toilet trained was 18 years old. And it was successful with a consultation for an ABA school that had given up on him. Mm -hmm. Like a good school gave up on, not gave up on him. They just, toileting wasn't, the primary, because he was so old at that point. But I got a, I got the right consultant and we did it. So that once again, just like I said with um, the gen ed setting, the principles aren't going to change, but the details have to change. Mm-hmm. Why? Because you're now toileting an 18-year-old. They're right. bigger. Their bowel movements are bigger, messier. When they don't want to <laughs> do something, it's harder to make them do it. The details are obviously going to change. Like I toilet train most of my young guys. I, I recommend toilet training them either with no clothes on or only underwear. But, you know, it's hard when you have an 18-year-old in a, in a school setting to say yeah. we're going to keep him with no clothes on. That's a man. Mm-hmm. Like, or, or a woman. That's a woman. I'm going to have her completely naked in the school bathroom. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, no one, no one looks twice at a three-year-old and thinks it's inappropriate when you're toilet training them. But having an 18-year-old adult woman naked in the bathroom with a trainer... Yeah, the details have to change. Yeah. I've seen a lot of times too, even like if students don't want to do a certain thing in school, like any behavior, there has to be that motivation piece of wanting, like them wanting to do it. And that reward of they have a successful void in the toilet and they earn that reward. So sometimes would you suggest kind of like reevaluating what they are getting out of the experience or the reward piece? I would definitely say doing a, a doing a good preference assessment, just knowing that this is a difficult skill. So like, you know, one M&M is not going to do it. Right. You know, one, <laughs> one M&M, you know, this is like a hard skill. And, and by the way, yeah. it's an infrequent skill, right? It's not, they can't do multiple trials within 15 minutes. Yep. So it, it's an infrequently rewarded skill. So that means that the magnitude of the reward has to be larger. So you can't give one gummy bear to a, a person for going to the bathroom. However, you might be able to if what you have is a three-year-old. One gummy bear sometimes goes a long way <laughs> with a three-year-old. They like think of it like gold and they like like you know the, what they just got. But when you have an 18-year-old, that one gummy bear is gone before you even gave it to them. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Like they need like a bag of gummy bears, or maybe not even edibles. Maybe they need yeah. more powerful activity-based reinforcers, social reinforcers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. So you kind of mentioned this with the adult being alone in the the bathroom with an adult who's unclothed while Mm -hmm. toilet training. Are there any legal considerations that educators should keep in mind when they're doing toilet training with students in the school setting? You know, I can't think of anything necessarily legal other than you have to follow whatever the policies are. If you're doing it in a school district, 
What are the policies of that district? Can you have a person only in underwear? Can you be in a one-to-one situation in a bathroom? Can you be in the bathroom at all with the student? So it's not necessarily a legal thing, but it might be against district or agency policy to be in a bathroom. You know, I know some districts who say, well, uh, the teacher could be in the bathroom, but not in the stall. The stall door must be closed and the teacher has to stand by the sinks and just shout to the kid, you doing okay in there? Like, okay, (laughs) but that's not a great toilet training model. So sometimes I say, find the policies, see if an exception could be made. See if you can get an accommodation on an IEP made, even potentially temporarily to do a toilet training, like maybe even like as a uh, a 504 accommodation that's temporary Mm -hmm. to see if we can make Mm -hmm. an accommodation here. If you're doing it in someone's home, that's different. There's there's no legalities there. You can certainly be in people's bathrooms if the parents sign consent. I would do that, though. I would have parents sign a detailed consent form that they understand that you're doing a training Mm -hmm. training like this. But I can't think of anything necessarily illegal or legal ramifications. I would say, though, always keep in the back of your mind that there's an intimacy when you're doing this work. So there's like an intimacy with a person, with a very usually private activity that you're now making by its nature somewhat public. So just kind of know that. Then again, I don't feel that bad about it because by the nature of needing to change their diaper is public. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, people argue with me, well, we're not allowed to be with them in the bathroom. Oh yeah. Who changes their diaper? Well, we're allowed to change the diaper. I'm like, do you just, do you hear yourself? (laughs) Like like it doesn't, you know, but people sometimes compartmentalize these regulations. Yeah. Those are all really good points and, and considerations with it. So switching kind of from the legal side that you touched upon, are there any sort of ethical concerns that school professionals may need to kind of keep in the back of their mind if they were to be doing toilet training with students? Yeah, I mean, well, there's the ethical concern of making sure that you checked everything out that could be going wrong before you start something, right? So physiological stuff, medical stuff, medications that the child might be on, because it would be unethical to just start using a behavioral method when there might be some physiological medication-based issue going on. So that's something that you have to keep in mind ethical. But you know, once again, I don't, I don't have a one particular ethical problem or, or ethical code or anything like that. But what I do say is you always have to keep in mind the level of dignity when you're working on these things, right? So you're not toilet training a kid without, I don't care if he's two years old or if they're 20 years old. You're not toilet training them in the middle of the hallway. You're not having, you're not wiping them in the middle of the hallway. You're not talking about lunch conversation while the kid is on the toilet, but the staff members are now all discussing lunch, standing in the bathroom, watching this kid go to the bathroom. I mean, I always say this, do it the way you would want to have it done. (laughs) Like, (laughs) kind of like if you needed to learn to toilet train and you wouldn't want to be on display and you wouldn't want people to, you know, just remember that it's going to get messy and it's going to like, you you don't want people to be making comments. Like, you know, making, I was like, oh, Oh, look at that. He wet his pants again. Now it's all over the floor. Now it's all over me mm-hmm. like that. Well, that's not a nice comment. And I don't care if the kid doesn't understand. Like, it's not like it's not, you know, it's not a comment of, of with, with dignity to be saying with somebody. So I'm not sure if that's necessarily an ethical code thing, but it's an ethical thing. No, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And and even too, I always say to, to people when you're working in the schools, like even if you think the kid may not fully comprehend or understand it, they do. Most definitely. 
Absolutely. Oh, you know what? And even if they don't, other people around them do. Yep. Yeah. Understand that there's a level of intimacy with a plan like this. And you always have to keep that in your mind. So what other final tips or words of wisdom do you want to provide our listeners regarding toilet training? You know, it's honestly, it's just one of the most life-changing skills to teach somebody. I mean, there's a lot of life-changing skills. I'm not going to, I'm not going to claim that I, I, I work on the most important, but <laughs> and there's a lot of life-changing skills out there, right? But, but this is really life-changing to not just the kids, but to the family, like yeah. to the family, to think of your fellow teachers, think of the teacher that's going to have her next year. Like mm-hmm. you're helping the broad world here by toilet training somebody. And really it's like one of those skills where it's like, it, it just socially, it's what, it's what makes us be able to be in a community. It's like one of those skills that allows us to be, kind of be in a community. Now, granted, if a person doesn't have the physiological capabilities of toilet training, well, then certainly there's accommodations to be made. And I'm not suggesting that those individuals wouldn't be part of a community or or something like that. What I'm saying is if a person has the ability to be independent, that this is life-changing. I mean, do you know there's, there's, there's some evidence to show that individuals that are not toilet trained actually wind up with more of like developmental disability, wind up with more abuse later in life because of like the facilities that they have to be in. And, you know, the staff people don't like when they, I just changed them and now we had an accident. Like I just, I just changed the kid. You know, not everybody is so patient. So it, it like is even just protection for people to have them toilet train, right? So that's, I think my biggest comment that if it might take a while and it might take hard work and consultation, but it's one of the most life-changing things you could help somebody with. Yeah, I agree. That's and the- you know, not even just developmental disability. Think of that four-year-old that just joined Cub Scouts. You know, yeah. the yeah. typically developing kid who just joined Cub Scouts, but kind of still has accidents. You're really changing his ability to be in that Cub Scout group and not worry that, oh my God, what if I, I'm not going to drink the soda because what if I have an accident? So really, it's really life-changing. Yeah, it's a lifelong lifelong skill that can end up impacting the person. Yep. Definitely, definitely agree with you there. So, I, I mean, Frank, are there any sort of resources that you would suggest maybe for our listeners to check out if they want to learn more about toilet training? Well, you know, there's books out there. A lot of them are good because a lot of them are just behavioral, right? So, I mean, you know, a lot of toilet training books are good. A lot of the gen ed toilet training books are good. The parenting books are good. My book is pretty good. Like, like, <laughs> I was you know, going to say, you have like, to like, shut out your book. My book is pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'd say it, but I mean, it is out. And know, what's the title of that book, Frank? Toilet Training Success a guide for teaching uh, individuals with developmental disabilities. But honestly, it doesn't need to be used for developmental disabilities. It's any individual, really. And that's not just my my book. That's like, you know, there's, there are other ones out there. There's classic books like the Azra and Fox books. Those are a little bit more for developmental disabilities more specifically. Although Nate Azrin has a book, Toilet Training in Less Than a Day, which is Gen, gen Ed. Fox and Azrin have that book. So, But, you know, also uh, organizations like ASAT, Association for Science and Autism Treatment, they have a website and there's a whole bunch of stuff on there that they always publish little synopses about toilet training and things like that. So, I mean, there are resources. Excellent. And for our listeners, we'll have links to those different resources that Frank is sharing for you to be able to check out. And if our listeners want to get in touch with you, Frank, what's the best way for them to contact you? Um, I guess email, right? My email is F, as in Frank, F Cicero, C-I-C-E-R-O. So F Cicero at frankciceropsych.com, P-S-Y-C-H, frankciceropsych.com. 
I thank you so much for spending time with us. This was really valuable to hear and it's such an important skill to work on. So I really appreciate your time, Frank. Thank you. And if listeners, if this was valuable for you or if you have different parents or teachers you think would enjoy this episode, please share it with them. It'd mean a lot to us. And again, Frank, thank you so much for your time and listeners, we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. If you found value in this show, please leave a rating or share it with a friend. Resources mentioned during this episode and links to our social media pages can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about how Class on Task can make a difference in your classroom or school, check out our website, classontask.com. Thank you so much for joining us today and see you next time.